Closing the book on Christian nationalism with great pleasure. Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to the second and final part of our spooky Halloween episode of Love Thy Neighbor, where we're venturing deeper and deeper into the haunted woods of Christian nationalism, where monsters and so many confused creatures roam. We've been reading the book suitably titled Christian Nationalism, A Biblical Guide for Taking Dominion and Discipling Nations, authored by the Andrews, Torba, and Isker. If you haven't checked out the first part of this double episode yet, you should do that before you listen to this one as we discuss the first five chapters of this frightful opus with Dr. Jeremy Sabella. But here with us for the second half, we are pleased to welcome former professor and good friend of mine who spent his career serving at two universities, most recently Johnson University in Tennessee, where he was professor of New Testament, vice president of academic affairs and provost, who then, like the great George Washington or the Roman general Cincinnatus, <laughs> has since retired from the battlefields of academia to tend to the lush farming fields of pastoral ministry. He has been a constant source of wisdom in my life and a dear friend for many years. Dr. Weatherly, or John, I should say. Mm-hmm, welcome. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thank you, Dr. Bailey or Cliff, I should say. <laughs> um, uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Okay. <laughs> Am I watching C-SPAN? <laughs> so to get us started, um, I asked Jeremy a similar question on the first part, but I'm curious uh, what you might say. So I, I believe I remember you telling me one time a while back that you voted Republican basically since Reagan. Yeah, that's correct. And then in 2016, that was the breaking point for you. Yeah. So you know Republicans well. And I do, you know, and we've all three been around evangelical and conservative culture for most, if not all of our lives. Yeah. Knowing these communities, how would you talk to somebody who is uh, really taken by the Christian nationalist movement? And what kinds of, I guess, tips Mm -hmm. would you give Mm -hmm. our listeners on how to talk about these issues with someone who's really bought into it? You know, one of the things that I would say here, and, and I appreciate the way you guys are approaching this, because it's I mean, at one level, to take this book seriously um, is just um, a travesty. Uh, you know, it's 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 not a serious book as uh, a book of ideas. Um, it is intended to um, rile up people who are already inclined to to think along these lines, uh, and we can maybe talk about the way that Christian rhetoric over a couple of generations, uh, or maybe. As, as we could frame this even back into the 1920s uh, has has been kind of um, plowing the field for all of this. But thinking of it in exactly this way, how can someone who is taken by this kind of thing be talked to? How can we approach this person uh, with grace and love and reason and so forth? And the, the first thing that I would say is don't overestimate what you can do in the short term, but don't underestimate what you can do in the long term. Because I've certainly seen, without any deliberate strategy, people who are in my circle who are very taken by 
this nascent right wing movement that is going on, who have very definitely cooled to it, taken steps away from it, um, maybe aren't quite willing to get up and say, you know, uh, I used to be and now I'm not. But effectively, that's that's the thing. So so we're, we're talking about something over the long term. And, and in that respect, I mean, and this is this is who I am by nature. And so, you know, what I trained to be in academe, I trained to be an exegete, I trained to understand the Bible, uh, and help other people understand the Bible. And I would approach this by saying, you know, there are there are glimmers of reality in this, it is true that um, Jesus is king, Jesus is taking dominion. It's not a question of whether Jesus is king. We shouldn't imagine that the Christian faith is about getting your ticket punched for heaven, uh, full stop. Uh, we should understand that, you know, God's will should, will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that, that God is taking his world back, um, and that this is, this is what King Jesus is doing in the present. We should not, however, imagine that it's done by this kind of means um, that uh, when Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying it's in that other world in heaven. He's saying, we don't operate like you guys at all. And I'm going to show you that by letting you crucify me. Um, and, and you know, the, maybe the most glaring omission in this book is even a moment's reflection on the theology of the cross. Uh, this is what, uh, what, what Jeremy, um, and I'm so disappointed that I couldn't be on with him because I think he's so cool. Okay. We'll do that uh, sometime. Okay. Sometime. Yeah. Next yeah. Halloween, um, uh, whatever it might be. Um, we'll, um, um, you know, he was talking, processing this with, you know, through Luther and so forth. But, you know, this is, this is, this is the message of the New Testament. You're going to, you're going to suffer with me, uh, which doesn't mean that the media elites are going to make fun of you and not let you run their networks um, and, and so forth. Um, it's, it's, it's much bigger. It's much deeper. It's much broader than that. And you are not going to respond uh, by trying to grab power or exercise power in the way that they do. Uh, so how does Jesus become king? How is Jesus enthroned? By the cross. And if this is the case, then we're just we're just operating on on a different on a different wavelength. Um, and the power of Christ is going to manifest itself in the world differently. That will and off, you know, transform the way governance is done, but not in terms of the collapse of uh, a corrupt secular order while uh, the church is set up as if it could a sort of separate order. And then people are just going to turn to that because there's nothing else left. Um, but um, in in the ordinary way that Christians live their lives in the name of Jesus, loving their neighbors, pouring their lives out for the sake of people who don't deserve it. Um, this is how Christ reigns in the world. And you can see that in all kinds of ways every day. So we're really, I think, um, in part, uh, acknowledging this, this shred of truth Jesus is king, and then saying, but here's how he's king, and we're providing an alternate vision for that, Missing which in the, the end, I think, yeah, it's a vision of, it's a vision of a cross, uh, yeah, which is followed by a, an empty tomb, um, you know, in, in death we find life, it is in, you know, St. Francis, uh, it is in, in giving that we receive, uh, this is, this is the, the, you know, this is the core insight into existence, I think, of the of the Christian faith is that you don't gain your life by holding on to it, but by losing it.
You know, this is what Jesus says to his disciples immediately when he tells them that he's going to the cross. So, you know, it's I think it's a matter of of reminding, inculcating that, that kind of thing. The problem that we face is that a lot of people have been discipled to uh, this. And God bless you all for using the term Manichaean. Uh, you know, in the first hour, um, I, I discovered that that way of describing this about this kind of thing about 15 years ago. And I try to limit myself to only five uses a day uh, <laughs> since then, because it's it's just so true of political rhetoric, of of religious rhetoric and so forth. But but so many people are discipled to this Manichaean understanding of the world um, that says, the world is so corrupt that I have to completely separate myself from it. Um, anything that is not overtly Christian is corrupt at its core. And so must be, must be avoided, must be rejected. And the best thing that we can do is, is build this kind of, of, mm -hmm. you know, Marvel cinematic universe of our own, mm -hmm. uh, where we construct alternate institutions and, uh, news outlets and entertainment venues and 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 what have you um uh, right right down to you know we don't have halloween we have a fall festival uh right. you know whatever the, so i've been told every sunday that for 40 years that um my the true test of my discipleship is how separate from the corrupt world i am and now these guys come along and say darn right and here's what's going to happen. Um, you know, we're going to just let those guys go to heck. And uh, when everything collapses, we'll be the last people standing and we'll be in charge. Mm -hmm. We'll be in charge. And at that point, we see the what the corruption of the of the of the understanding of power that this is this isn't even necessary. They're not even offering a kind of a, a, a utopian post-millennial vision of massive conversion it's a, a it's it's a it's a dystopian post-millennial vision of subjugation hmm. um that ain't jesus is it uh, the simplicity of manichaeism that's the draw you think and and the way it cushions us against the the hardships and the vicissitudes of life okay yeah. i'm thinking specifically of a of an experience i had with a friend um, who went through a very tragic circumstance that was heavily covered in local news. And um, my friend was deemed in public opinion to be a monster uh, for having been involved in this tragedy. And as I looked at that, and knowing my friend, who is, is the opposite of a monster, whatever that is, I, I realized the reason we label someone who's gone through something like this a monster is that that assures us that we'll never have to face the same kind of tragedy. Yeah. So this is what happens to monsters. I am not a monster, so this will not happen to me. So uh, a Manichaean worldview gives me the assurance that I don't have to worry. I don't, I can have an easy conscience, right? It's uh, yeah. I can have an easy conscience because all the problem is with those people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it completely leaves out what's very central to the Christian faith is empathy, being able to identify oh, yeah. with the other. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this this Sunday, um, I, I preached on uh, the, the story of the the widow um, who's uh, of a name in Luke chapter seven. Uh, 
whose uh, son Jesus raises from the dead. And, and Luke says, um, Jesus had compassion on her and told her, mm. do not weep. And, you know, the, the word that's used there, which is applied a number of times in the synoptic gospels to Jesus is, is a word that is the, you know, uh, the idea of, uh, of a deep human feeling of identification and suffering with those who suffer. Mm. And yeah, and this is, this is exactly it. So, yeah, but you know, I don't like to suffer. I don't like to contemplate my own mortality. I don't like to contemplate my finitude. I don't like to mm. contemplate my fallibility. I'd like to be mm. seldom wrong, never in doubt. And so, um, and so I, I construct um, imaginary worlds in which all of the problems lie with other people. Yeah. We even talked about this yesterday, mm-hmm. um, privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were listening to a song and we were imagining uh, that the song covered a a, a pretty um, historic murderer. Yeah. And we were like, well, you know, it's so easy just to represent these people as icons of just pure evil. Monsters. Mm-hmm. Monsters yeah. do that. But you have to, it takes a lot more courage to actually know that these people are just humans as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. you could do the exact same thing. You could be in the exact mm-hmm. circumstances. Um, but I think in labeling those people as monsters, you also kind of lose a bit of your own humanity in the process as well. Because oh, yeah. yeah. you, you set yourself above all the the historical stuff in the world, all the sins, everything you've done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Great point. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. The way we throw around the word felon uh, yeah. or convict. right? Illegal. Now. Uh, yeah. Illegal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember, um, I, I, you know, Timothy McVeigh was the Oklahoma City bomber. And when they came to the sentencing phase of his trial, uh, the defense showed home movies of him growing up. Hmm. And I remember just seeing clips of that and realizing, yeah, he's just like me. Hmm. You know, he grew up in this country in just an ordinary home, had an ordinary life, you know, um, and of course, that was their strategy. Um, it didn't work. He was sentenced to death. Uh, but um, uh, but to to see him as a fellow human being, and and that is really disturbing. I, you know, in a different in a different vein. I remember when when uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison. And a student came to me and said, I have a real problem with this because I heard this guy became a Christian. And the idea that, you know, I might spend eternity with this guy is just loathsome to me. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not here to to judge the validity or the non-validity of Dahmer's conversion. I have no reason to question it. And, and so I've got to say, yeah, he's a brother. And what does that mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who am I? I want to get to a, a pretty central um problem that I would find uh, it, in this book um, comes in chapter six. Mm-hmm. He's going on. He actually shares a quote um, from David Chilton and he's talking, mm. he's describing the spiritual man, uh, this false view is what he's calling it of a spiritual man. And he says this, the spiritual man has the one main duty in life. Uh, and this is the spiritual man he's critiquing mm-hmm. is to get stepped on for Jesus. The spiritual man, <laughs> the spiritual man in this view is a wimp, a loser, but at least he's a good loser. And then it goes on to critique that and say that, you know, what a yeah. good spiritual man is, is someone who doesn't get stepped on. I want, I want to know if, what kind of comment you have for this. Um, this is blasphemy. This is antichrist. 
Um, any questions? <laughs> I think we should just read First Corinthians too, where Paul asks the questions to all those Corinthians grumbling over power. Yeah. Um, that uh, the power of God is displayed through Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say anything about resurrection. Just right. says crucified. Yeah. There's God's power for you. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, you know, um, yeah, this is this is just the complete importation of garden variety don't know Jesus values um, into the idea of dominion and then mixed in with another message that Christians have been given ad nauseum over the last two generations, uh, which is that the Bible says men must be prototypically masculine and women must be Mm -hmm. prototypically feminine. I can't name a verse of the Bible that is making that point. Right. And I've read it more than once. Um, this is something I found with uh, with Christian college students was just kind of a, a a second order good news for them. When you said, you know, the Bible really doesn't tell men to act like men or women to act like women. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> especially for women, I found uh, who many of whom had just been told you're just not the right kind of person. Uh, or maybe they were more ready to admit it. But yeah, that that whole business about what there's some he riffs on you know you're gonna lift weights and have kids and i don't know you know smash beer cans against your forehead i, I have no idea what all is involved in that what would but you, go ahead sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you dr brother but what would you say this might be an overly simplistic question so mm-hmm. just imagine you're saying this to somebody who's like a big proponent of this book or even andrew torba uh and isker here and they say well the bible says god made them man and female yeah and that's their rejoinder what would you say to someone like that that's true, that, but it doesn't say, and men must act this way. Yeah. And women must act this way. You know, who's, 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 I'll just randomly pick two people uh, out of Christian history. Who's the better Christian man, Martin Luther or Francis of Assisi? You know, yeah. I'll give, I'll, I'll give props to both of them uh, if we can leave out the, um, luther's anti-semitic writings right um you know i yeah there there is there there are gendered behaviors are not the essence of the gospel but again one of the things that that um evangelical christianity has done is abandon its evangelicalness in favor of a message of social order uh which has to do with um mostly with the ethics of sex and the ethics of life and the ethics of life confined to abortion, uh, more specifically, as as we all know. Um, and so um, these, this is, if if this is what you've heard, the world is bad, and the greatest manifestations of this the uh, of of this fact are um, uh, lack sexual ethics at the extreme uh, LGBTQ, um, but uh, in in everyday life. Uh, the way that uh, feminism is is altering the the social landscape, um, and um, um, the other extreme is that we we kill our own offspring. Uh, those are those are the great evils of our time. It's it's very easy to make the move then to saying so. The greatest thing that God can do is legally stop those evils. In chapter seven, um, which is called "Time for Lukewarm Christianity." to be over the time for lukewarm christianity is over 
Uh-huh. Um, I was struck by the way that the authors are using the phrases lukewarm Christianity uh-huh. and yeah. leap of faith. Um, yeah. Let me let me read a section real quick. So he says the enemy's current strongholds uh, are in the education system and in the culture. Their topic, mm-hmm. their top objective is the indoctrination and conversion of your children to their de- demonic religion. The single most important thing we can do as Christian parents, the single most important thing we can do as Christian parents is to prevent that from happening. Mm -hmm. The way we do that is by going all in, taking a leap of faith and living fully for Christ. There's no room or time for lukewarm. The enemy is expecting and conditioning you to be lukewarm. When you are lukewarm, you are vulnerable. Your children are vulnerable. Our country and indeed the West itself is vulnerable. Cut the cable cord. Cancel Netflix. Delete your big tech accounts. If at all possible, find a way to homeschool your children. If that is not possible, make sure you are spending time in God's word daily. So it seems like the way they're using leap of faith has this kind of neo-Puritan tone. Yeah. Cutting out Netflix, deleting your big tech account, homeschool your kids. I'm not saying anything bad about homeschooling itself, but the way that they're using leap of faith over and against lukewarm Christianity, what are they missing here? Well, yeah. And and again, let's let's say they're missing a theology of the cross and an understanding of evil as something that we all participate in versus the idea that evil is something that's external to us. And if we can separate ourselves from it then um, then by that means we overcome it. You know, there's been some recent survey data that show um, that, you know, at, again, there's nothing wrong with homeschooling. And, and because, I mean, this is a big country with lots of different school situations. Parents need to make the decisions that are that are right under their local circumstances um, and, and with with their own children in mind. But but choosing homeschooling because we're afraid of secular influence, I think, is a very overblown concern. I can say after all the decades that I was involved in Christian higher education that my best students almost without exception were public schooled students. Uh, best not just in terms of academics, but in first in terms of the the depth and the resilience of their faith. Um, but on top of that, we've got survey data now that show there's a statistically significant higher incidence of faith in young adulthood among people who are raised in Christian homes and go to public schools as compared to those who go to private Christian schools or are homeschooled. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's it's it, I'm not blaming the schools or homeschooling as such, but the whole phenomenon of of social isolation i think is 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 as much as anything um at, at fault here so so that's that's what you've got going now you know interestingly enough to me as i'm re- as i was reading that i was thinking now these guys are are really part as as jeremy mentioned they're part of the christian reconstruction movement mm-hmm. uh which is this thing that's been happening in reformed christianity for a couple of generations now i stumbled into this when i was in college and needed uh a, a to do some reading on the on the Mosaic Law, um, and I was I actually had my first professional writing assignment, and, and and I needed to do some research. So I did what any freshman would do. I went to the library and pulled off the thickest book I could find in the section that was relevant to what I was doing, and it was Rusas John Rushdoony's The Institutes of Biblical Law, which was a it had some decent exposition of of the Mosaic Law, but then it moved into 
to, and here's how we should apply this in 20th century America. Right. You know, here's what gleaning would look like in 21st century America. Here's what slavery punctuated by um, a sabbatical year and with all the provisions of the Mosaic law, you know, here's how that would function instead of public welfare and this kind of thing. So it was pretty radical stuff. Well, not directly a part of that Christian reconstruction movement, but adjacent to it was another significant figure of that period, Francis Schaeffer. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and you know, Schaeffer was very much in this reformed Puritan tradition, but Schaeffer understood he had a he had a nuanced understanding of humanity. Uh, and he, he wrote a lot about, you know, he called it the nobility and the cruelty of humanity. So, uh, you know, he advocated Christians understanding art and literature and drama and film and so forth, uh, really being very aware of the culture at large and appreciating it for the way that it reflected the creative capacities of human beings in the Imago Dei. Um, and this is the complete opposite. These guys wouldn't know Imago Dei if it slapped them in the face. Yeah. You know, they they have no no love or respect for fellow human beings whatsoever. Um, you you know, you are either a conqueror or you are conquered um, in in that regard. Um, and and it's yeah, it's it's very 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 foreign to to where we need to be. I have nothing there. That was perfect. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. great. <laughs> That's good. Um, so staying in chapter seven, but this goes much further. Really, chapter eight's all about this as well. But mm-hmm. we got to talk eschatology here. Oh. Uh, but this is this is actually kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Page uh, 82. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read this little section right here. The tolerance of the generations before us has led... So the big bad here, the big baddie is tolerance. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the tolerance of the generations before us has led to the subversive takeover of every facet of society and even the faith of the global elite, <laughs> the Illuminati. Uh, that does not mean that they cannot be defeated. I believe that God has a plan to do so, but it will take the organized, peaceful, and long-term commitment and effort of his people to accomplish this. I see this kind of language about God's plan and us fulfilling it, us alone. It's dependent on us. Yeah. As be, that's that gives that raises some red flags for me. It's a little Pelagian. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit Pelagian. Uh it's a, it's very uh post post mill. Uh, oh, it's extremely post mill. And, and, but not in a way that a more traditional post mill would ever acknowledge. I mean, it would ever would ever they'd say that is post mill formally but not substantively and this will become more explicit in chapter eight but they're yeah. clearly revising history from from kind of oh, a yeah. pessimistic outlook that yeah, has yeah, yeah. dominated evangelicalism for over 100 years to this very optimistic view yeah um what's spurring this on they have to know their like this is a very yeah. difficult thing to to turn this whole ship around of mm-hmm. evangelicalism into this new optimistic direction and I guess this would be a good time to talk about what new mistakes are they going to make by trying to correct the old mistakes, yeah. you know, of, yeah. of premillennialism. Yeah. Well, I, I think, first of all, this is where we kind of realize this is, you know, this book or pamphlet, maybe we should call it that. And I say that not as a statement of, of its length, because it, as 
anyone's observed who's picked up this book. And by the way, I was gratified to see that even though initially this book broke some of the bestseller lists, it's now like 33,000 and something on Amazon's bestseller list. So yay. That's um, good. <laughs> discerning public. Yeah. But um, it, it's it's very, it's a pamphlet in the sense that it's ephemeral. This is, this is a, a call to the moment. I mean, you know, what's the historically great pamphlet of uh, or pamphlets of American history. It's Thomas Paine's. Yeah. The crisis. Well, this doesn't deserve to be mentioned, you know, right. in the same lifetime. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's intended for this moment and it is in this respect, it is a very intra evangelical call. Um, and really what they're recognizing here is that evangelicalism is dominated by dispensational premillennialism left behind, et cetera. I think they even maybe mentioned that explicitly. And these guys belong to this very rarefied reform tradition that wants nothing to do with that. Um, and uh, reformed theology, Calvinistic theology, if you will, has, tr has traditionally been very inclined towards postmillennialism, the idea that through the age of the church, that the gospel becomes ascendant and God is triumphant, in part because I think it mitigates the, the problems of election, that it seems like God isn't electing very many people. Uh, but if you allow for this future, um, you know, glorious development, then then kind of the balance is is turned. Um, but, you know, this is this is always understood to operate through, I, you know, the, the classic expression of American um, postmillennialism is um, is in a hymn text, uh, not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. So, you know, it is Christians being Christians that's going to change the world. That's salt and light. Uh, and 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 of course they've just they've just transformed this and picking up the lukewarm language um, uh, along with that. But I think they're also hoping to capitalize on the general discouragement and disappointment that people have with their dispensational eschatology, that they keep getting told that the end is coming and it never does. Uh, you know what's what's the latest what's the latest what's the antichrist du jour. <laughs> Um, you know, what's the latest thing that indicates the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, whatever it might be? Uh, how does this keep going on? And whereas dispensationalism doesn't give you anything to do, this gives you something to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think I think there's a I think there's a lever in that since they're using they're they're misappropriating lukewarm. I'll I'll misappropriate something else but you know i'll say this for you you hate the nicolaitans the way i do okay i'm glad you reject the 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 dispensationalists i just wish you'd do it with the gospel instead of your own agenda okay. here yeah just let me just jump in here and ask a question um just go with me no oh, yeah. i have no idea what i'm asking um what what differs here from the optimism of like progress that Niebuhr is really critical of mm -hmm. is this again, the, the, again I think the reason why the question is so hard to formulate is because Christian nationalism is so dispersed there's not mm -hmm. it does not unify so people right. believe different things but is this really weird view that we participate and somehow control providence just think of yeah. Kat Kerr Kat Kerr goes out in florida with her staff she always just carry around this big stick wait and who's cat kerr she's like this prophetess okay and uh. goes around and like is commanding the winds 
from the hurricane to blow away in the other direction, <laughs> right. which that would probably will. blow away back to Cuba and kill everybody over there. But like, you know, <laughs> who cares, right? And then you have people um, who, what's his name? <laughs> the guy who blew COVID away, yeah. you know? Oh, him. Yeah, yeah, that was. So what is it? Because for, for me, when I see those things, it seems like when, when we're demonizing like things like COVID, we actually, and underlying the implication is we do have a really strong belief and optimism in our own achievements. Like mm -hmm. we should be able to control the stuff, mm -hmm. but, but by appealing to God in those cases, are, are we admitting that these things are outside of our control um, in the same facet? Mm -hmm. What is going on here? I, I don't know. You guys see what I'm go going for here? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, a couple of things come to mind uh, to respond. One is, uh, you know, I'm, there, there are people who have better definitions of these things than, than I do. Uh, when you're trained as an exegete, you're working kind of, you, you get about 5% of what all the other religious scholars get and try to blend it together yeah. into something that's convincing. Uh, but, um, you know, if, if we were to define uh, magic, as the attempt to manipulate unseen spiritual powers for one's mm -hmm. own benefit. We have a lot of, we have a lot of Christians who believe in magic. Yeah. In that sense, yeah. who believe that Christianity is just the right form of magic. So if I pray the right way, I mean, this is the prosperity gospel in one way, mm -hmm. but it's, it's done in other ways too. If I pray the right way, uh, God will give me what I want. If if I am masculine enough, I will have a great marriage. And, and if my wife is feminine enough, and it's probably her fault, um, you know, um, so forth and so on. So uh, I, I I think, and 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 again, it's because um, trusting God is hard, and admitting you're weak is hard, and and no one wants to do that. So I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be needy. I want a gospel that puts me back in charge, even if nominally I'm bowing to King Jesus. I'm bowing to King Jesus, but really he's just up there in heaven telling me to vote Republican and uh, and, and cut the cable. Uh, right. And ironically, then, in this in this optimism, it's a dystopian optimism. Yeah, that's the because thing. because I'm waiting for general social collapse and to be the last man standing. Yeah. So that's how we could differentiate it from something like uh, early 20th century communism. Communism really thought that it was ushering in a utopia like, yeah. uh, well, I guess through the conflict, I, gu I guess they would still see there's a conflict there. Is it Marxian? Is it, do they have kind of a Marxian eschatology? Like it's, through this conflict did, with secularism, they're going to didn't we up? Didn't we hear that in the in the previous hour? I think maybe yeah, actually actually Jeremy did bring that up. I yeah. think I think okay, we're done. They're Marxists. <laughs> We've hard. labeled them game ah. over. Game over. So this is the this is the point. They they're calling us Marxists because they don't want to admit that they're the true Marxists. Yep, that's right. As Karl Marx himself said, it takes one to know one. <laughs> <laughs> so then oh, here so Let's imagine with me, okay, this this conversation we're having. I outlined this in the last hour with Jeremy, sitting down, having coffee, talking about this with somebody. Yeah. And they're they're really buying into this form of Christian nationalism, very optimistic. Mm -hmm. How would we, and this is a very Niburian type of question, mm -hmm. how do we differentiate hope from optimism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think first of all, uh, and I don't know how Niebuhr would do it because as as 
as I like to say, I am Niebuhr's biggest fan who doesn't read any Niebuhr because I don't have time. <laughs> At least you're honest. Um, yeah. Niebuhr is entirely mediated to me through other things like Arthur Schlesinger mm -hmm. and and Dr. Clifton Bailey. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I I don't know, but. If if someone were to say to me, you know, hey, Weatherly, you're supposed to be a New Testament scholar. How is hope different from optimism? I'd say the world sucks. It's God who we hope in. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I and, you know, another text that I think is vital to this is Jesus parable of the sower, mm -hmm. um, which is really a story that engenders a tremendous deg degree of discouragement until you get to the end. Okay. The sower sows his seed, and he seems to be a really cruddy sower because most of it falls on bad soil, and so it, it seems just wasted, and it's failure, failure, failure. But some of the seed fell on good soil, and there's a great harvest, the end. Okay, so... Um, um, this is a little bit like uh, N.T. Wright saying, you know, when he, when he looks at um, the end of... First Corinthians 15, you know, be be steadfast and movable, uh, knowing that your labor is not in vain. He says, we are building for the kingdom of God. We don't know how, but the things that we are doing following Jesus and in the name of Jesus in the present are somehow building for the eternal kingdom of God that Christ establishes at his return. Yeah. So I have a hopeful view of the future, not because I think that... Um, the world is going to get better. I'm myself not a post-millennialist, except insofar as amillennialism is a variation on post-millennialism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think Christ reigns, you know, in the already, but uh, also in the not yet. And and it is Christ who will establish the the not yet. So so I'm I'm living hopefully because my hope is in Christ. My hope is in the divine and in divine action, divine intervention. But I understand that that God is present with me now through the Spirit, and the Spirit empowers me in ways that are somehow building towards that. And I'm even experiencing that in, in the love and grace that I experience in fellowship with other people through the acts of love that they perform for me and that I perform for others and so forth. Um, I am experiencing something of what the e eternal reign of God is 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 like um and and so i am hopeful because i'm i'm focused on the the final action of god but understanding how that is already affecting and transforming the present in a lasting abiding way uh but i'm not optimistic in the way that i think well you know people are going to wise up and start voting better uh for example um i wonder what is this might be a, a totally, this is an un, totally unanswerable question, mm -hmm. but we've been living with kind of a very pessimistic uh, premillennialism and it's done, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's had done some damage, I think, on my, oh, on my wife, not least of all, she has a mm. kind of PTSD growing up, always, yeah. you know, if the clouds look a certain way, she gets, you know, scared, mm. um, but uh, <laughs> that's true, um, but uh, if it, let's just say hypothetically we're at a crossroads where this book takes off and people really start mm. buying into a post-millennial or very optimistic uh, view of the future of Christianity. Yeah. What's more dangerous? I wonder, is, is it, is it the, the pessimism of kind of what we've, what we've seen or is it Christians who actually think they can 
you know, take control of this thing. I mean, yeah. And, 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 and I think you just named it. I think what's dangerous here is not the formally post-millenarian um, outlook. It's the understanding of power. Yeah. It's how the kingdom comes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a, a classic post-mill person is going to say the kingdom comes through the action of God in the present age, through his people in the, you know, the conversion of the nations. And oh, by the way, that doesn't mean modern nation states, as it was stated earlier. The nations is simply, you know, everything that is in Israel. Um, and oh, and by the way, Israel is among the nations for in, in that uh, in that formulation as well. Um, but uh, it's it's not um, it, it doesn't come by that means. It comes by people in the name of Jesus. Yeah, um, propagating the gospel, con, uh, you know, conversion. Uh, people through the power of the Spirit, living by love, God's love and grace and generosity more and more, so that our inhumanity to one another is deeply mitigated. Um, and um, ironically enough, uh, it, it uh, um, a kind of Christian anarchy, I think, would be a more consistent post-millennial vision of the future than this kind of uh, Christian autocracy yeah. uh, that, that they're describing. Um, you know, um, a world in which a few Christians are telling people how to behave sexually uh, does not strike me as the reign of Christ. Right. Uh, and that's, and that's pretty much all these guys have got, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, um, you know, this, this means we take over political power in a fundamentally adversarial relationship with everybody else. That's fundamental. That's, that's, fundamental. The argument is that we know better than you. Yeah. That's the, that's the, that's right. that's the first part of the book that yeah. if you love your neighbor. You will not allow them to be, uh, you know, uh, confronted by foreigners or foreign ideology. Right. Yeah. Now this so. is, this is, and this is something I hear a lot from, from this kind of radical right-wing uh, reformed movement. Um, love, love means blasting people because if you yeah. don't blast them, they won't listen. Um, this is love without a golden rule. Mm. Yeah. You know, this is, this is, this is hyper, hyper paternalistic love. Yeah. So it's autocratic love. I'm doing this because I love you, man. That is just the worst. Yeah, so, I think like okay. uh, sorry, but it just brings me back to Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, we we bring a Bible scholar in here, and all of a sudden we're talking about the Bible oh all the gosh. time. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> Hail Mary, full of <laughs> anyway. So, uh, um, sorry, just train of thought. Just give me seconds. Sorry, dude. You think like the the logic of putting people on blast in the name of love. Um, not to quote Bono or you two, but it, it's it would cause your neighbor to sin almost. You're yeah. forcing their hand. And yeah. Paul in is it Corinthians where he says that don't eat meat sacrificed to idols in front of your Jewish brothers and sisters because yeah. you'll cause them to sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like where is the compassion and the forcing of a hand? Yeah, a you know? Yeah. So well, chap- speaking of, I, I think this is somewhat applicable of understanding kind of our own limitations, understanding our uh, the perspectives of others around us. Chapter nine is a doozy, has a doozy of a title. Doozy. If your pastor did not celebrate Roe being <laughs> overturned, it is time to find a new church. Yeah. I think it is time because you didn't, you didn't celebrate. I didn't. I was. And... 
in fact uh we pulled up somebody put a sign out in front of our church a pro-life sign and we happened to have a council meeting that night i was like do we need to pull that up and they're like yeah "Yeah, we need to pull that up so Mm. Mm. uh what thoughts just on the title i mean the title it it, it based now the reason that they give for pastors kind of not taking a a victory lap you know uh sunday mornings is basically that they're saying that they're afraid of being political in church is this the real reason or is, is this no. a straw man? That's a straw man. Um, there, there are a couple of historical straw men in, in this. Um, uh, one, one is to say that dispensationalism created all the pessimism. I think you can blame World War I. Um, uh, you know, another was to say the second great, great awakening was what privatized Christianity. I don't think that's the case so much as it was the reaction to the social gospel movement. The second great awakening led to all kinds of social action like prohibition eventually and things of that nature. The temperance movement is, is closely connected there. But I, yeah, I definitely think this is a straw man. I was actually involved in a, in a conversation like this. Um, I'm part of a uh, a social media uh, private page for uh, for pastors um, that's pretty active. We've got a, a few hundred members. Um, I think you may be on a cliff, though. You're not. You're not there. Very I don't much. really. I'm not active. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fine. Most people aren't, um, and some who are shouldn't be. Uh, but uh, um, you know, when when the uh, uh, when the uh, reversal of Roe came down, there were some guys who said, I know some of you aren't going to celebrate this at your church. Um, and it was with a kind of a sneering tone that you don't care about this as much as I do, but we're going to celebrate this at mine. And, you know, several of the guys said, I'm happy, but I don't think, you know, we want to celebrate this in this way because different people are, are processing this in different ways. I mean, Every pastor in America needs to understand that a significant number of the women in your congregation have had an abortion, whether you know it or not, and you and you don't know it. I mean, that's just that's just inevitable. So, uh, some of the biggest heroes in my life are friends of mine who, you know, gave testimony at church about the fact that they had had an abortion mm-hmm. when no one knew this um, and, you know, and did that so that other women could talk about it privately and and you know experience god's grace um in in the middle of that so there are a lot of reasons there are good reasons to be a good winner if you will you know um and of course i've been pointing out for years as many have that the the rate of abortion has been in decline since the late 1970s there before um the overturn of roe we had fewer abortions um, per 100,000 women of childbearing age than we did in the year before Roe. Mm-hmm. Um, so abortion has been in decline uh, for reasons other than legal. Yeah. Um, and it will not decline. It, I'm sure it will decline for legal reasons, but it'll decline better if we do other things. Uh, there's no question about that. So, you know, I, I wasn't in a pastoral position when that, when that came down, if I had been, and if we'd been discussing what we were going to do, I was, I would have suggested let's, let's, let's pray and ask God to direct us how we can provide better help to people who are pregnant and struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that would be better than taking a victory lap. Now, 
What do I think these guys are doing? I'm cynical enough to say that any time that a pastor gets up and says, if your pastor did this, find another church, what he's saying is you need to go to my church. Right. What? Yeah. In my notes, I have written down that now we're basically you, you give like this criteria of when you should leave a church. You're basically just trying to homogenize, you know, yeah. uh, you, you know, the church uh, just around ideologies. And that's, yeah. that's basically it. Yeah. You know, just to, just to run the tape back, um, you know, we, we remember when um, Barack Obama in 2008 was getting clobbered because um, his, uh, his pastor in Chicago, Jeremiah. Right. Right. Thank you, Jeremiah. Right. You know, had, had done his, his, sermon that somebody dug up where he said i don't say god bless america i say god damn america mm. um and uh you know how can you how can he you know you can't vote for a guy who would go to a church like that and i want to say come on people members of churches aren't responsible for every idle word or less than idle word that their pastor utters you know um if you leave every time the pastor says something you don't like you will never go to church more than one week consecutively right. you know yeah. it's just not going to happen um, so there, to a certain extent, that's just a grossly irresponsible, manipulative statement. Um, but, uh, but at a, at another level, you know, this is just the Manichaean world that they live in yeah. or, or, or trying to construct. Now this, uh, going into chapter nine here, this is probably, or I'm sorry, chapter 10. Mm. Total victory is inevitable. Yeah, they have some wild titles. Uh, total victory is inevitable. Probably the closest thing I could find to kind of a thesis statement for their movement their political cultural movement is on 106 where he says this we can and must reclaim and maintain our township school boards and counties then our state legislatures then the entire nation in order to do so we must exit the beast system completely Mm -hmm. and build our own parallel christian society lying in wait for their system to collapse Mm-hmm. which is when the godly infrastructure we have uh, built will fill the vacuum. So we have this kind of, we're, um, we're going to take over, but let's lie and wait. Let's build our own parallel society first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we must support, start, and grow Christian-owned businesses. We must stop using the technology tools of the enemy and start building and using our, this is so mannequin, is so um, the, the evil, we can't touch the evil uh, uh, technology. You know, it's got cooties type of thing. Yeah. Um, finally, we must be prepared to wage a multi-generational spiritual war against the demonic anti-Christian worldviews that are dominating our culture and Western society. Our sons will have been through the classics, all of Greek philosophy, interesting, mm-hmm. uh, the entire Bible, and know how to build things with their hands, shoot guns, grow food, hunt fish, lift weights, <laughs> lift weights, and start a business by the time they're 18. They will be fishers of men who fear and worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They will conquer, lead, and take dominion of all the nations for the glory of God. So I guess that's their foreign policy. So if this is the thesis statement, uh, what's our final assessment, I guess? Um, I guess, now, I, I wanted to ask you this, Weatherly, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Weatherly. Um, so we are talking about before the recording. This isn't an academic test. You called it a pamphlet a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Um, how should we read this? Uh, Jeremy called it uh, postmodern. Yeah. Um, first, I want to, I got to ask, should we take this seriously? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Like, how do we take yeah. it seriously? 
I, I think I think we should take it seriously as uh, an example of the demagoguery that people are are getting in Christian circles pretty heavily. I don't think that this is going to be the the most persuasive expression of Christian nationalism. Most Christian nationalism is an attempt to take um, the Trump political agenda and glom onto it some kind of rationale. I mean, you, you, there, you know, like the America First Institute and, and the Claremont Institute and so forth, these are organizations that basically exist to sweep up the detrius of Trump's, you know, statements and policies and try to create some connective tissue to it to make it coherent. Um, there's there's a, a way in which that agenda gets baptized, which is largely labeled as Christian nationalism, which is to say, we're leaving NATO, we're not letting any immigrants in, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to reverse Roe, we're going to reverse Obergefell, uh, and, and, and this is how we're going to be Christian in America. Uh, that, that is, that has none of this pre-mill trapping, that has none of this kind of, you know, we're lying in wait for the dystopia and then, and then we'll be the last man standing kind of, kind of ridiculousness about it. But a lot of it is appealing to um to the kind of thing we see here and and i think a term that that we were using in our conversation before the show that i used is is not i i would describe it not as postmodern though i think that's valid but as demagogic um this is an attempt to manipulate fears that people already have for the uh benefit of the demagogue um as they adopt the demagogue's agenda, they empower the demagogue. Uh, so I, I really think that's mostly what's going on here. Now, it's postmodern, not as a strategy, but as a description. Uh, you know, if we see postmodernism as primarily a way of describing the way that people use language, well, yeah, people use language to manipulate. Uh, and um, without careful reference to data that we're capable of deriving from the external world insofar as we can do that. And, and um, folks are fine with that happening if it, if it aligns with things that they already believe and if it appeals to them um, viscerally, emotionally, et cetera. So I, I think it's, I think it's an, an example, an instance of, of that kind of thing. Um, and I would approach this in very much the same way as I, um, saw people approach uh, the the book that came out in 1988, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Um, you know, first of all, we're going to tell you this is what the Bible actually says about this stuff. This is what Christians actually are, believe about this kind of thing historically. And secondly, when you realize this, we're going to be here for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a, a guy I know sent a a letter he was on staff at a, at a big church and they sent a letter out days before this book said that jesus was going to come back and said you know when this doesn't happen and you're disappointed give us a call we're here for you hmm. um uh I, and, and i think i think that's what we're doing that we're, we're trying to maintain um a loving relationship with people and that love may be one-sided uh so that they're ready to listen when they're ready to listen um and Along the way, we're, we're we're providing them with with an alternative. But this is this is demagoguery, dem, demagoguery. Which G's are hard and which are soft? You take your pick. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, this is being a demagogue uh, to the nth degree. Well, I think it was in 2020, leading up to the election, when the Republican Party 
decided to not have a platform. Platform, yeah. That tells you every. That's kind of an admission that we are what this guy is. That's it. Um, yeah. it uh, what's our position on Russia? Listen, listen to him. You know, yeah. um, and so the task you got it. You got to hand it to him for for trying. The task of this book is to capture something that is really summed up as a spirit of a man or like a, you know, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. essence of a crazy man, you yeah. know, is what they're trying to make logical and you can't do it. Yeah. And if we were to say, well, is wouldn't it be totally contradictory to your thesis to even be a part of the Trump movement? And I don't, I, I mean, to be honest, uh, maybe they aren't. But I'm guessing most people who would read and believe this book would would be very happy to, to vote for Trump a third time. Um, you know, if if we were to look at it uh, and, and say it in that way, um, you know, there may be any number of rationalizations as to as to why you would you would vote that way. But at the end of the day, I would simply say demagogues like other demagogues. Right. Mm, that's true. I want to read a section out of chapter 10 and I have a, just a question for both of you, actually. So before he gives his last, you know, huzzah call to arms, he says that uh, whoever wrote the chapter says, well, we are thankful to our Protestant Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. who have inspired to publish this book. We recognize and respect one another's difference and unite in our shared love of Jesus Christ, our King. Two questions. Do you guys actually think they mean this? And, what do you think they get their inspiration from? Do they get the inspiration from the New Testament or do they get it from how they understand the 13 colonies functioned as separate countries mm. working with each other? Um, is this from the epilogue where they go into the Christian nation stuff? Oh, okay. No, this is from chapter 10. Okay. Does that make sense? It seems where like, does this come? Does this come from? Kind of their because they do do a lot of the appeal to history they, stuff. They, it seems like to me that they're appealing more to the historical fact that America, in their eyes, was a a nation of countries of different Protestant religions, mm -hmm. and they had to get along with each other in order to have this unifying thing. So, are they appeal? Are they appealing to other denominations based uh, upon okay, gotcha. their being an American? or because they're being Christian? Heaven knows. <laughs> you know, one of the things that struck me about this, um, way back uh, when I was in seminary, some 37 years ago, oh my goodness, 38 years ago, um, I had a course, um, well, uh, Cliff, you can, you can edit this however you want. We can either sure. say I had a course with... Or we can say, I had a course with a guy who wrote a doorstopper uh, systematic theology. Okay. Um, at the time, he was not a, um, a professor of systematic theology. He was a professor of New Testament because that's what his, his Cambridge PhD was in. And um, in a course that I had with him, I had, I had a couple of courses with him. Um, and um, to be honest, I learned a lot about method from him. But I also learned that he was nuts. Um, there, you may have to just cut this to shreds. This may just, fall <laughs> okay. Um, and, and one of the things that he was advocating in a course on new Testament ethics was a kind of radical reconstructionist federalism that would say, if, um, you know, if Waukegan, Illinois wants to declare itself, um, an Anglican town, it can, 
And so, you know, the schools can be Anglican and all of the civic offices can be, you know, attendant with Anglican services, etc. Um, now, you can live there and not be an Anglican, but if basically if you live in Waukegan, you agree to live under the Anglicans. And, and Skokie can be, you know, um, conservative Jewish and, um, you know, and on this this kind of radical, you can establish a religion in a locale. Now, I sensed at the time that the only reason he wanted to do this was to take over public education. That, that the bottom line was the schools are secular and we want them to be religious. That was that that was the main thing. Uh, there was there was no kind of larger agenda besides this. So it'd be very interesting to talk to somebody who was like a, a, a sociologist of religion or, or a, an American scholar, you know, historian of an American Christianity to kind of identify that particular stream of reconstructionism and see how it may have influenced this sort of localism uh, that these guys are into it's it's pretty clear though that their whole you know attempt once again to david bartonize american history is just fundamentally false uh, ironically enough a lot of the language about you know the failed colony at roanoke and so forth being there to evangelize the savages that's actually language which according to um canon law in uh, the roman catholic church gave a right to european nations to take other people's land um, if they aren't Christians and they aren't farming it, it isn't theirs. Um, and um, and so, you know, they're savages because they don't farm and they're pagans. So we're going to evangelize them. But actually what we want to do is raise tobacco. Um, you know, that there's a, 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 a kind of a, a kind of a paradox there. Um, I don't know. What was the question, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> Why are they doing like what's inspiring them? Is it an appeal I, to history? Maybe to, to just kind of like re-ask re the question are they interpreting their commitment like pluralism for mm -hmm. other denominations through how they view america or because of their christianity yeah and interesting i don't i don't know that you can separate the two i, no. I think they've just they've just got molded it together yeah yeah it's all it's all glommed up and and this is i mean unfortunately this has been the diet that a lot of people have had in their churches again for yeah. however however many years how, however far going back take him as take him as far as you can but howard was does have a lot to say to this and yeah resident aliens these are just constantinian christians hmm. to an extent right so oh yeah jeremy made the comment in the last hour that they don't even know their own texts <laughs> like they're not even that familiar with even the people who inspired their own movement so yeah. in 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 the run-up to this as i was reading the the book uh, you know i tweeted a couple of remarks about christian nationalists and one was just how deeply offended i am that people will trumpet their commitment to scripture and question that of anyone who disagrees with them and yet make the most fundamental errors in its interpretation uh, like the use of the word nation, like completely like writing. Well, it's it's a hundred some pages, but it's really about 40 um, of, uh, you know, so-called Christian discourse and never once mentioned Jesus died. We're wondering this like uh, Aaron and I were wondering this as we were reading. When did our kind of modern conception and I know you're not a medieval historian or anything but when did our modern conception of nation come about and 
because there's, ob- there's obviously the the way that they are using that anachronism for their argument is yeah, yeah I, I really think um um it's kind of a 19th century phenomenon oh is it okay yeah uh i mean you know it, it goes back before that um but it's it's a european idea um and uh, but if you think about if you think about the way that we view the world today um germany you know didn't exist uh the german federation didn't exist until what bismarck yeah. uh you know late 19th century italy same thing um that uh, these these were you know very fragmented um peoples who had similar histories and 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 shared dialects of a common language but they didn't have they, they hadn't had political unity um since you know who knows when mm-hmm. um uh you know those those processes uh, are at work but um you know, uh, one of the things that w- that maybe misleads us is the way that we, reading the Bible, will flip back to the back and look at the maps and and imagine that all of these places had these very clear borders, and they didn't. No. You know, um, they're they're just approximations, um, and um, you know, and, and this plays into the way we read the word. Uh, Jew or Jews in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There's a, of course, there's a problem that modern people have because it's both a religious and an ethnic term, but it's also a territorial term. Someone from Judea. Uh, so I think, for example, in in First Thessalonians chapter two, when Paul refers to the Jews, he means the Judean people, mm-hmm. uh, the people back in Jerusalem. Um, and, um, you know, so there's, there's a, a lot of, of, of nuance, uh, to that kind of thing. And to a certain degree, I suppose one could argue that the very difficulty that we have with modern nation states and keeping them together is an expression of this, the American civil war, the separatist movements in like Spain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and places like this and so forth. Why are there, you know, why are there always battles going on in colonized parts of the world? because the people who did the colonizing have already fought their battles uh, and are still getting over them um, to a certain extent. But, uh, but then, you know, Czechoslovakia becomes two things and Yugoslavia becomes 47 things. And, right. You know, the, the Soviet union becomes, well, you get the picture. Dealing with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have one last question for the three of us. spooky music dr weatherly this is this is optional for you (laughs) but of course i'd love to hear what you have to say if you got something this is part of our spooky series for the october interviews (laughs) the year is 1949 niebuhr is on official business to meet with truman to discuss reconstruction in europe at some point in the meeting truman gets up and ushers niebuhr into a back room and says reiny i got someone i want you to meet This is the son of one of my most trusted diplomats, and he'll be staying with us for a season. Niebuhr takes one look and he knows there's something off about this kid. He looks like the little kid from The Omen, Daniel. (laughs) Niebuhr isn't 100% sure if this is the Antichrist, but he has a feeling. Now, misuses of Antichrist aside, Niebuhr very gentlemanly obliges and meets the young child not letting anyone know his suspicions. 
Though at one point while Truman's back is turned, the boy looked straight at Niebuhr, contorted his face and made a stabbing motion toward his butler. Disturbed by this encounter, Niebuhr returns home and promptly tells Ursula his concern that he believes a U.S. diplomat's son who is staying at the White House is the Antichrist. Ursula says, okay, Reine, I believe you, but just to make sure, why don't you write out an essay outlining certain habits and traits of what you think evil incarnate is? What does Niebuhr write down? So basically what I'm asking is, if Niebuhr were to write out the very worst traits of a human being that a human being could possibly possess, what would they look like? Mm. Do you want the first mm. crack at this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I guess um, an overflated ego and a big um, superiority complex. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Do you have anybody in mind? Uh, well, <laughs> one name comes to mind. Several. Um, Michael Flynn and Donald okay. Trump, Steve Bannon, Alex Oh, you're Jones. just going to name that whole crew. <laughs> okay. I mean, there are other people as well who are not. So what? Of that, yeah, but... what does Niebuhr? What are the great sins to Niebuhr? You know, yeah, combined think... into a man. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. thoughts? Well, I mean, it's John? it's it's yeah, it's hubris, right? It's yeah. um, it's believing that that you can exercise power nobly. Yes. Yes, that's yeah. a fantastic answer. I have down the self awareness of Donald Trump. The morality of Paul Tillich, the, <laughs> the arrogance of Elon Musk, and the manichaeism of the Andrews, Torba, and Isker. That is a great formulation. Okay. <laughs> I am right now quaking in my boots just to <laughs> contemplate that individual. Oh my God. You should, Cliff, you should make a movie. I should. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wesley, for coming on with us. Oh, this has been so much. This is this is a dream come true. <laughs> I love it. And we definitely will have you on with Jeremy and yeah. we'll get the whole gang together and okay. Read, read and, and if I ever get my own podcast started, I want I want the opportunity to shamelessly plug it on yours. So absolutely. Yeah. We should we could like start our own network of well, I thought about that. I thought, you know, because I, I, I know one other guy who's doing a podcast. I think I was thinking, let's call it modest Christian podcasts. And and basically what this means is we are own are we are our own production and distribution staff and we don't sell swag. <laughs> Although Aaron, Aaron wants to sell swag. Yeah, I want to sell swag. It's a whole well, thing. you know, some neighbor swag would be pretty cool. Yeah. I want to just call ourselves footstool Christians. You know, the irony of that, too, is that it is it is um, the Lord who tells the Lord's king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. He doesn't say sit at my right hand until all those people make your enemies a footstool. Uh, that's true. That's very, true. very misused. Well, that about does it for this week's episode. Our spooky Halloween double episode of Love Thy Neighbor. We want to again thank our guest, Dr. John Weatherly. You can follow him on Twitter at Swinid. That's S-W-N-I-D. Swinid. It stands for Seldom Wrong, Never in Doubt, which was proven to be true again this day. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Like, subscribe, write us a good review. Don't forget to go vote in a couple weeks. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.